0: Our first reading is from the book of John. Let us listen to God's word. Abide in me as I abide in you. Just as the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. Those who abide in me and I in them bear much fruit because apart from me, you can do nothing. Whoever does not abide in me is thrown away like a branch and withers. Such branches are gathered, thrown into the fire and burned. If you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask for whatever you wish and it will be done for you. My Father is glorified by this, that you bear much fruit and become my disciples. As the Father has loved me, so I have loved you. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. I have said these things to you so that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be complete. This is my commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. No one has greater love than this to lay down one's life for one's friends. Our second lesson is from the book of Matthew. Beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing but inwardly are ravenous wolves. You will know them by their fruits. Are grapes gathered from thorns or figs from thistles? In the same way, every good tree bears good fruit, but the bad tree bears bad fruit. A good tree cannot bear bad fruit, nor can a bad tree bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Thus, you will know them by their fruits this is the word of god for you the people of god thanks be to god join us now for week four of our summer sermon series practices of faith and sanity welcome dr jenkins who shares this week's message when the heart's unfinished business won't wait the practice of presence
1: good morning the person i find it hardest to forgive is me I know all my excuses by heart. I've noted the extenuating circumstances, the rationalizations, the balancing of negative to positive consequences for my action and inaction. I was too young to know better. Everyone has to make their mistakes. If I could undo it now, I would, but I can't, so I won't. Or as Willie Nelson sings, I've got a long list of real good reasons for all the things I've done. I've replayed the movies of cutting remarks I made at the expense of someone else, the casual cruelties masked as humor, the impatience that led to the neglect of kindness. Those things I have done and left undone, they pile up winter, spring, summer, fall, through the years like drifts of dirty snow at the curbside. I gingerly try to step around them, but they remain. I could write an encyclopedia on regret. And regrets are among the hungriest of hungry ghosts. You know, there's something about being 30,000 feet in the air traveling alone that makes me especially susceptible to regrets, and all kinds of feelings, frankly. Like the time I read A River Runs Through It by Norman MacLean the story of the two sons of a Montana Presbyterian minister. One becomes a professor at the University of Chicago, the other a hard-drinking, hard-gambling newspaper man who is murdered young because of his debts. I I read that book somewhere over the Atlantic Ocean and was grateful for the dark cabin that hid my tears, especially when I read the sermon that the father preached toward the end of the book after the death of his younger son, I've got a friend, Brent Slay, in Grand Rapids, Michigan, who can recite the sermon by heart. And here's how it goes at the end. Each one of us here today will at one time in our lives look upon a loved one who is in need and ask the same question. We are willing to help, Lord, but what if anything is needed? For it is true, we can seldom help those closest to us. Either we don't know what part of ourselves to give, or more often than not, the part we have to give is not wanted. And so it is those we live with and should know who elude us. But we can still love them. We can love completely without complete understanding or there was that other time, again, up in the air, when the song of Bernadette by Leonard Cohen, Jennifer Warrens, and Bill Elliott came through my headphones, and memories crowded into my mind with those haunting lyrics about the child saint, Bernadette. You probably know the song. We've been around, we fall, we fly. We mostly fall, we mostly run. And every now and then we try to mend the damage that we've done. So many hearts I find broke like yours and mine, torn by what we've done and can't undo. Mm. What damage we've done and can't undo, and so often we do that damage in the name of love. The person I find it hardest to forgive is me. Or perhaps, maybe, forgiveness isn't the problem. Someone has said that humans can learn to forgive, but only God knows how to forget. Our memories, our minds, our hearts hold so much unfinished business, and we won't or we can't finish it. Anne Lamott once wrote, forgiveness is giving up all hope of having a better past. That's a good insight, but it's a lot easier said than done. I got this call early one morning. It was my college roommate, Dave. We had vaguely kept in touch over the years, mostly an annual Christmas card. He called to tell me that our mutual friend, George, was dead. It's been almost 20 years since that phone call, but I can still remember where I was standing in our house in Austin, Texas, when Dave said those words, George is dead. He committed suicide. The three of us have been friends since high school. We were musicians. It's probably because of George that I'm standing here in a church today. I didn't go to church much. The church he attended had this huge youth choir, and they wanted a band to back them up. Well, George and I were in stage band together. George played percussion. I played trombone and keyboard. After rehearsal one day, he came up to me and he said that they'd like me to be part of the backup band. You don't have to go to church if you don't want to, he said, except, of course, when we perform. But, of course... There were girls in the youth group, and they stayed for church. So I suppose I ended up in church because of lust evangelism. Don't knock it, it works. About halfway through college, I realized that I was neither smart enough nor talented enough to be both a musician and a theologian, so I dropped out of the music world. George continued. He turned professional after college. He was brilliant. He could play any kind of music, and like a lot of musicians, he had to if he wanted to make a living. He played with top performers in every conceivable genre, even country western. I remember looking up one day in a blockbuster video, and there George was playing drums behind the Judds. We hadn't talked in so many years, I'd lost count. I didn't know he was divorced, or that he'd moved from Nashville to New Mexico, or that he'd been ill and that he'd stopped performing. I just lost touch. And then out of the blue came that call that morning, Mike, this is Dave. I don't know how to say this except to just blurt it out, George is dead. He committed suicide. George, who hated violence and had quit believing in God back when I was in seminary because he just couldn't square the world's pain with a God of love, George went out and bought a handgun and shot himself. Where was I when George was in so much pain? One of the things that hurts most about being human is wrapped up in that well-known phrase, the unfinished business of the heart. I've heard Jack Cornfield talk about it over and over again, the unfinished business of the heart. Guilt lingers, regrets lie scattered around on the floor, shame festers, dashed hopes and unfulfilled dreams clutter the closets of our consciousness. Maybe the reason so many of us Love making to-do lists on scraps of paper and post-it notes is because it feels so good to mark things off, to finish them and to say, well, that's done, now I can put my feet up. But the human heart can't erase the jobs on its list. The human heart can't simply put its feet up then. The unfinished business of the heart won't be dealt with so easily. A few years ago, Lori Gottlieb wrote a wonderful book titled, Maybe You Should Talk to Someone. Lori is a psychotherapist. She also writes a very good Dear Therapist Advice column for The Atlantic. Recently, I was scrolling through the archives of her column, and I noticed the volume of mail of a particular sort. If I had a file for this kind of mail, I'd call it intractable predicaments. Those situations that won't yield to a simple solution or maybe to any solution that require us to adjust our own expectations. In other words, a lot of her male concerns those situations in which I have to realize the only person I have any control over and the only person that I can hope to change is me and that only with a lot of help. There's a son or daughter or husband or wife or lover or partner or close friend who is doing something destructive to themselves, and you have no power to change their situation. Maybe they know what they should do, maybe they don't. But for whatever reason, they just can't or won't change the behavior that would improve their life. There are the people who are being eaten alive by guilt or regret, and they wish they could just talk to the person they've hurt, somehow make it right, but they can't. The person they harm may be dead or otherwise unreachable, or they may suspect that contacting them would only add to the suffering. There are the loved ones around whom we feel an invisible force field, an emotional force field, And when we are close to them, we feel as though we are both positive ends of two magnets that resist and avoid rather than connect. I don't know, maybe that's what the Lord Jesus meant when he talked about fishing around for a speck of dust in someone else's eye when we've got a tree limb stuck in our own. And what about that tree limb? It's not like I don't know it's there. What can we do when the heart's unfinished business won't wait anymore? Well, there's no one-size-fits-all response to deal with the heart's unfinished business. But there are practices that set the right conditions for us to do the work, the hard work, the spiritual work of dealing with the past and the present and the damage. And even before we start, We should recognize that we are not alone in this. Every human heart on this planet has unfinished business. We should also recognize that it took a long time to accumulate our hearts unfinished business and it won't be dealt with instantly. But the spiritual practice that addresses the unfinished business of the heart has a long history and its path is well-worn. We're going to call this the practice of the presence of God, but it is widely known as the daily examine and is part of the spiritual exercises of St. Ignatius of Loyola dating back to the 16th century. Now this week I want to encourage you to engage in this simple practice, the daily examine. You can look it up online and find a variety of versions of it. Do this for a few moments either at the beginning or the end each day. And this practice consists of five easy steps. The first of these practices is this: awareness of God's presence. Sitting quietly where you're not likely to be disturbed, close your eyes and allow yourself to become aware that God is present. God in God's grace surrounds you always, right now. Second, the daily review. Allow your mind to review that day or the previous day with gratitude. Ask God to allow you to see that day as you have lived it in light of God's love. Third, the examination of consciousness. Pay attention to the events and interactions of that day, and your emotions ask for insight into ways in which your feelings and actions were good, life-giving, and healing for others. And if you become aware of regret, feelings of guilt or shame about something you have said, done, or not done, allow yourself to hold that awareness without judging yourself, placing yourself before God. Remember, your sin has been nailed to the cross. Fourth, prayer of thanksgiving. Father Dennis Ham, a Jesuit, describes the examine as, quote, rummaging for God. It's like digging around in a dresser drawer in our hearts to see what's in there and to find God in it. When you find something in the drawer, pull it out and place before that the presence of God. Ask yourself, how can I find God in what I have done? And when you pray for forgiveness, remember that God alone is judge. That God wishes us to step out and to live in what he remembers and not to hang around back there dwelling in what God chooses to forgive and forget. Give thanks for God's mercy. And then finally, moving on, look forward to tomorrow. The Jesuit poet Gerard Manley Hopkins understood so well what it means to face each day with gratitude, knowing that, as Hopkins wrote, the world is charged with the grandeur of God. It will flame out like shining from shook foil. You know, there's a misconception about forgiveness that is so common in Christianity. And the misconception goes like this, that God is waiting to forgive us and that God's forgiveness is conditional upon whether or not we Ask for forgiveness correctly, or repent correctly, and it's a real misconception. The only reason we can approach God and ask for forgiveness is because God has already forgiven us. Uh, an evangelical friend one time asked me, "When when were you saved?" And I said, "Well, about two thousand years ago, I guess." And I think this is something we really need to hold precious. As we go out into the world this week, I charge you, remember your baptism. Remember that you are forgiven, and that's what gives you the courage to live and to approach God. And now may the grace and peace of our Lord Jesus Christ, the love of God, and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you always. Amen.